Good morning, everybody. This is Will Richardson in San Francisco. Welcome to the Richardson Financial Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be with David Blanchett. David is the head of retirement research for Morningstar Investment Management. Many of you have heard of him, perhaps seen him speak. He's a national speaker at various events. He's been quoted in the Wall Street Journal as recently as this month, and he regularly contributes to our industry. In fact, uh, recently he was a key contributor to the American College regarding a new designation that uh, has been created very recently, and that is the Wealth Management Certified Professional, or WMCP. You can get more information about that designation at the American College's website, and I want to thank uh, the American College for introducing us to David. David, welcome. I know we're going to have a great conversation today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I thought you know an area where we could start would be in one of the papers that you've published. There was this this idea of estimating the true cost of retirement, and you talked about how how it can vary between say half of what a person was spending before retirement up to. 80%. It'd be great if you could just share what you're noticing there in terms of, of what accounts for that variation and how people can think about that. Sure. So when, when people are thinking about, about retirement, you know, I, I like to make the point that the retirement is the most expensive purchase you're ever going to make, right? Uh, the average home in America costs about a quarter of a million dollars. Um, for most folks, retirement itself but the, the net present value of what you're going to need is over a million dollars. And so really understanding what it costs is really critical. And we use a lot of kind of shortcuts or rules of thumb in this industry to figure out, you know, how much you're going to need in terms of income. And a lot of people say, well, you'll need 80% of your income when you retire. And there's a reason it's less than 100%. Usually part of that is the fact that you're saving for retirement, you're paying things like Social Security um, and, and Medicare taxes. But in reality, it differs for you or each person based upon what your ideal retirement looks like. And so, you know, what's going to change, what expenses go away? And I think really this is where a conversation with an advisor is really important. I think that you can use 80% if you're, you know, 20 years from retirement because you're, you're 20 years off. But as you really approach retirement closer and closer, understanding all these different aspects of what you're going to spend money on, what you want to do, is critical to figure out, you know, what, what retirement costs. That makes sense. I mean, as you think about it, when when people are asked the question, do you do you think they've given it much thought, or what do you think a person would say if just if they if they were asked to consider how much they might need when they retire, let's say many years into the future? Yeah, I think people have have a pretty good idea of what they need as they get closer to retirement. And that's kind of intuitive. I think that I think it, it is important to run a financial plan for someone who's 35 years old. But it, let's be honest, if you're 35 years old, retirement is probably at least 25 years away. And so you're just guessing. I think that, that as people do get closer and closer, they have a better idea of, of you know how they want to spend their retirement, how much they want to spend in retirement, and, and it just all the aspects of, of, of figuring out what that number actually is. Well, that makes sense, and you know, I know one of the one of the key components of your research is this idea of factoring in inflation and how retirement can be many decades. So, what kinds of things have you have you found about about that, and what does that mean for people in terms of incorporating that into their financial planning along the way? Sure. So, 
key behind inflation really is, is how does retirement spending change throughout retirement, right? And we think about, about spending, there's kind of two different things that I think about. Uh, the first is what people spend money on, and the second is how much they actually spend. And so we think about that first one, you know, what do retirees buy that's typically the average American? Well, they spend a lot more money on, on health care. Um, the average retiree who's 65 spends about 10% of their total spending on health care, and then that goes about 20% by age 85. And so uh, a lot of people that, that, that track health care spending and health care costs know that, that health expenses tend to rise faster than inflation. And so with that perspective, some people might say, well, David, you know, if, if we're assuming that, that I'm going to spend, you know, uh, you know, plus inflation every year, where if inflation goes up 3%, I'm going to spend 35 or 4%, that makes retirement really expensive. What's really interesting is the second part of that equation, which is that people tend to spend less as they move through retirement, even accounting for how their spending money changes. So it is true that most people do, spend, do uh, tend to spend um, more on health care, but they actually tend to spend less over time. And so for every dollar that someone spends at age 65, um, in today's dollars, well, it's been about 70, 75 cents by age 95. And so what we see on average, people actually tend to reduce their consumption as they move throughout retirement. When you when you think about health care, I know there's been a lot of a lot of talk about extended care or long term care planning here recently, and you know the the costs are expensive, and um, insurance companies in some cases have had a hard time meeting the obligations. They've needed to charge more, and I mean, how do you how do you think about that component, or does that factor into your research? How a person who's healthy might might think about incorporating a long term care plan into their equation. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that long-term care insurance is, is, is uh, for lack of a better term, the, the perfect kind of insurance you should buy. It, it covers what is, in effect, a low probability but high magnitude event, where if you have a nursing home care stay, it can devastate the finances of a couple. And so uh, I, I, I like the idea conceptually of, of long-term care. Um, I, I do know that there's obviously been issues recently about increasing premiums, eligibility. Um, Big picture, though, I think that, that, that healthcare is important, but it's just one aspect of, of the big retirement puzzle, right? And I know a lot of people are worried about healthcare costs rising, and, and I think it's going to be an issue. But for most people, healthcare costs are somewhat manageable. Um, there's also somewhat of an offset where you know retirees that that, that have increases in healthcare expenses tend to have offsets other way. And so I think that, you know, healthcare is definitely a risk, for lack of a better term, um, but it's not the only risk. It's just one part of a much bigger puzzle when it comes to figuring out retirement. Well, and that that leads us to something I know that, um, you know, one of the recent research studies you've done and this concept of gamma that would be great to have you talk about. And, and you know, how does how does that fit into the idea of, what we may have thought of from studies that were done in the 80s or 90s about the safe withdrawal rate of, of 4%. I mean, how do you think about that and helping people figure out how much they could take out of different kinds of assets for that concept? Yeah, so, you know, first thing we'll talk about this idea of, of a safe withdrawal rate. And, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners, you know, read the newspaper, they go online and, they, you know, the, there's this thing we talk about a lot 
uh, called the 4% rule. And the 4% rule came about actually over 20 years ago. What it suggests is that uh, if you're a married couple, say age 65, when you first retire, you can take out 4% from your portfolio and then increase that amount every year by inflation. So uh, using some, some numbers, if you have a million dollars saved for retirement, you take out 4%, that's $40,000. And that amount, that $40,000, increases by inflation every year for effectively 30 years. What's really important here is that that 4% applies to the withdrawal of the first year of retirement. Now, a problem with this research is based upon long-term historical average returns. And, um, you know, for example, the long-term average yield on, on 10-year government bonds is at about 5.5%, right? Well, the yield today is closer to 2.5%. And so if you, if you think about, about you know, uh, current expectations for the stock and bond market, and, and you know, let's be honest here, no one knows what's going to happen in the future. But if we guess, we think reasonable guesses based upon things like market valuation, it really changes our perspective on, on what is a safe withdrawal rate. So while 4% was a, a very safe withdrawal rate historically, if we kind of rerun that analysis using more reasonable assumptions, 3% becomes the new number, which, which implies you need 33 times your initial income goal when you retire, right? So uh, we often cite these as withdrawal rates, really it's a multiple of your retirement savings. Now, um, now saying that is, is kind of scary because a lot of people don't have 33 times their, their target portfolio income level saved for retirement. And I still think that this 4% or 25 times work or even 20 times work, it's really about how much certainty you need with respect to your income. Um, a lot of people have Social Security, they've got pensions, they've got annuities. And if you have that, that guaranteed base income, it can allow you to take out more from your portfolio because if you come back on the portfolio withdrawals, you're going to be okay. But I think that in reality, uh, this idea of a safe resort really applies to each person uh, based upon their facts and circumstances. Well, you bring up a really good point. And I know in some of the research you've done, the idea of many of the metrics out there, whether it's alpha or beta, tend to be about portfolios and, and your point is these ideas around a person's financial plan and the unique uh, characteristics of, of each person and my understanding is that's how you came up with the concept of of gamma so it'd be great if you could describe you know what that means and, and how how people can can think about that in relation to their financial plan yeah you, uh, you, you can tell my research guy when I call something gamma <laughs> uh, gamma is, 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 is the word that I use to describe the value of, of financial planning and, and advising because, uh, you know, those of us that work in this industry, we like to use words like alpha and beta. Um, and, and alpha, for lack of a better term, is picking a great mutual fund, picking a fund that, 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 that beats its peers in this category like large growth or small value. Um, beta is, is often described as, as building good portfolios, allocating to stocks and bonds and international stocks and all these different things. Well, well gamma is actually the next letter in the Greek alphabet. It's alpha, beta, gamma. In, in, in my perspective, and I did this piece with uh, Paul Kaplan, who's the director of research in Canada, is that, is that the other stuff is so valuable that it's often overlooked. Right? I think that, 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 that a lot of clients and a lot of advisors really focus on investment performance. But it, it's definitely important. You know, I understand that that building good portfolios is essential to helping someone accomplish their goal. But in reality, there's, there's so much other stuff, right? And this other stuff has, has so much value that I think is often overlooked. I mean, I think back to, 
to when when I was a financial advisor over a decade ago. You know, I would I would get a, a question from a client. You know, you know, it would often be, well, how did my portfolio do? And that was the first thing they would ask, or they would they would see their statement. The first question they'd have about, you know, why is my portfolio not being the market? And and the problem with that is it's not kind of contextualized the goal, right? You know, an advisor does lots of things to help someone accomplish an outcome, and all those things have value. And so I wrote about this in a paper that was called Alphabetic Out Gamma. Um, you know, other folks like Vanguard have research on advisors. Alpha, um, invested at Cap Sigma. You know, all these kind of uh, fun or, or catchy names just describe what is some of this emerging belief that advisors can add a lot more value than just kind of picking great mutual funds or building great portfolios. Well, you mentioned this idea a minute ago, the safe withdrawal rate, you know, where, where interest rates are on the fixed income component that, you know, it's three, probably closer to 3% than 4% and that people ultimately need to have a multiple of that, you know, set aside and then add in any income sources they may have from <clears throat> Social Security or pensions or annuities. How do you, how do you think about the <clears throat> the risk that a person may not have very much invested in equities, in other words, the risk of being too safe and how they're allocated by maintaining perhaps um, most of their money in, in cash or fixed income? So, you know, I actually see significant risk today for investors being too aggressive or, or too conservative. I think that, that you know, especially if, if you're a retiree, you know, a lot of retirees are, are, are nervous about lots of things happening. You know, they want to say, you know, I can't afford to take any risk at all, I'm going to be in a very safe portfolio, right? Well, I mean, a few a few things there. I mean, if you invest in a, in a, in a very cash-heavy portfolio, the odds of that portfolio lasting 30-plus years of retirement uh, is pretty low. And I think today you have to take some risk in your portfolio. You have to be smart. I mean, so I, I really think that today, for most people, a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds really is, is the safest place to be. Especially if you want to, you know, accomplish a goal. I mean, if, if, if you're already retired or about to retire, you have more than enough money to accomplish your goal, then, then sure, you can invest very conservatively. But I think for most people, it's worth it to have, have some equities as part of their portfolio. So don't, you know, get too aggressive and have, have, and have all equities. Because right now, the markets are pretty expensive. Um, so are the bond markets. So I think that, you know, kind of my key message for a lot of folks is really just think about diversification and why it's important for your portfolio today. Well, you bring up a, a few interesting points. So, so one is there's there's risk in being too aggressive and risk in being too too conservative. And and another is you know to some extent if if you have enough then then perhaps meaning if you have enough income there's may not need to take much more risk than just to generate what what's needed. Um, how how do you think about the the idea of let let's say in in you know just the idea between stocks bonds and cash. And, and you may have experienced this when you're working with clients or in your research, and that is um, if a person is is thinking perhaps just, just being weighted in one equity class, you know, certainly big difference between bonds or cash, but what about the person who, say, only invested in U.S. large cap, S&P 500, as an example? How do you think about how the benefit of being diversified in the other equity asset classes, what that brings to the overall equation? Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, people think, people used to think, you know, we make this joke that uh, owning three Janus funds was diversification back in the tech bubble, right? I think <laughs> that, that, that you can get diversified portfolios with 
with, with, with not that many funds. I mean, you can do more in some instances with one fund than with 10 funds. You have to understand how those funds work together, right? You gotta understand why, why it's valuable to add this fund to the portfolio versus that fund, because every investment should play a role. And, and just buying a bunch of mutual funds, then it actually helps you have a more diversified portfolio. To your point, um, a lot of investors look to their own devices, build portfolios that are really kind of focused on U.S. domestic large-cap equities. And um, I think that that's, that's a decent portfolio. You know, in my perspective, better portfolios incorporate small-cap stocks, international emerging markets, because that's what you want to have is a, is a kind of a combination of, of assets for the highest risk adjusted return. So uh, I think that it's important to kind of understand what you're doing and what your weaknesses might be and really think about, well, you know, how does this investment really benefit my portfolio overall? That, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there's, there's some other terms that I've, I've heard in your research that it'd be good to have you go through. Um, and, and one of those is thinking about asset location. Can you give us a sense of what that means and how that works? Sure. So, you know, asset location is one of the things that I talked about in the gamma research. It was been around for a long time. I didn't, I didn't kind of create this concept. You know, all that it's saying is that, is that different investments have different um, tax attributes um, and as do different account types. And so, you know, certain, certain investments are very tax efficient. So buying, for example, uh, an ETF is a very efficient way to um, invest in the market because it doesn't really have that many realized gains. There might be a few dividends, but they're usually qualified. And so if you're an investor that, 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 you know, that buys a DTF, well, where should you buy it? Um, you know, at first glance, uh, a smarter place to buy that asset might be in something like a taxable account if you have those monies. If you have a very tax-inefficient asset like, like high-yield bonds or maybe real estate or other things that are taxed at a high rate, those are assets that belong generally in an account like a traditional 401k balance. Um, alternatively, if you're really high-yielding assets like small cap and emerging markets, those might belong in a Roth account. So the key behind asset location is really just thinking about the attributes of the investment in the account, making sure that you have kind of your portfolio invested in a way that maximizes your after-tax a realized rate of return. And I think you've described that as, a, as tax alpha. Is that how you think about, about that, that concept, really those two going together? It is. I mean, so I think people often, you know, again, this idea of, of alpha, it's building efficient portfolios. And you really can't see tax alpha very right? So tax alpha to me is doing something that increases the investor's after-tax realized rate of return. And for me, that's not very easy to do, but it's incredibly valuable. So, you know, I, I call the benefit of that is, is tax alpha. It's helping someone achieve a higher after-tax rate of return. And it, it, it leads to kind of, in some instances, unique portfolio. So, you know, if, if I'm a financial advisor, I may tell someone to invest their uh, their their uh, 401k balance all in um, fixed income. And I may have their taxable account that maybe I'm managing invest all in equities. Okay, well, overall, you have a very efficient portfolio, but the two components have vastly different performance numbers. And so it's really helping people kind of understand, again, how to invest and where to invest to create, you know, a higher after-tax realized rate of return, which we often call tax dollars. Well, it, it, it sounds like you're thinking about, you know, there's a certain amount of unpredictability to what might happen to tax rates. And so it's almost like if we, if we have different buckets that are taxed in different ways, that, that's better than if we... That if we didn't, and it, it just made me think of, you know, 
conventionally, most people's CPAs would say to them, hey, um, let's, let's get your tax deduction, let's put your 401k balance, uh, contribution rather, in the pre-tax bucket, um, because they're thinking maximize, you know, get the deduction now, but they're not thinking about taxes later and required minimum distribution. So how do you, how do you think about the idea of uh, those that have access to a Roth component within their 401k? Sure. So um, I think as we can all kind of recognize today, the only certainty with, with taxes in the future is uncertainty. And, um, you know, we have this idea of, of diversification for, for portfolios. You know, if, if we knew that stocks were going to outperform bonds, why would you buy bonds? And vice versa. If I knew that bonds were going to outperform stocks, I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy equities. Well, here's the thing. I mean, no one knows what's going to happen in the future with respect to tax changes. Now, you know, know, I'm not saying you should leave people in your situation. I I do think that for most people, having more of their wealth in a a pre-tax type of money makes sense because most people, when they retire, pay lower taxes because they have less pay for retirement, they have more tax-advantageous income. But I really do believe in this idea of of tax diversification where you you should save some of your money in in traditional and some in a Roth. And so, you know, for example, I have a very – very strategic approach to, to saving in my 401k, I just do half Roth, half traditional. Now, it's important to kind of acknowledge with that that you know, I'm getting a, a very generous employer contribution that is all pre-tax, so roughly about, about 30% of my savings is in Roth, the rest is in traditional. So I can have that, you know, those Roth monies available at some point, I want to manage my marginal tax or to do something else. So I think that, that you know, it's true that if, if nothing changes, Traditional makes sense for a lot of people, um, but it, it's really beneficial to have something um, also there um, to use to invest, you know, if tax rates change to kind of manage your income over time. Well, and it sounds like you were saying earlier some of the examples, I believe you mentioned emerging market and small cap is in the Roth allocation. So is the idea to, to go with your larger growth opportunities there so that you don't have to pay taxes ever on the gain? Is that, is that how you think about that? Yeah, I mean, so when you're thinking about how to um, how to allocate between the two, usually, you know, I should have probably explained this more previously. You want to have the really high growth asset in um, uh, in in your Roth account, right? And we want to make sure that that, that um, you know those assets that are most inefficient are in the traditional account. And so, because it, it, I'm sure your readers know this, but, but Roth monies are, are never taxable. And uh, traditional monies are going to be. So when you want that Roth account to kind of grow and grow and grow, um, it's going to have your highest performing assets in those accounts that you can. Yeah, that makes sense. And to your point, this idea of tax diversification is is something perhaps people may not think about, but it makes a lot of sense. Just in the same way you were saying earlier, we diversify between having large cap, small cap, emerging markets. We have all those things as they behave differently. And you're saying, let's think about how things are going to be taxed as well. And and that would lead to another concept of, you know, everybody's situation being unique, but the there's this idea of, of, of helping them come up with their overall allocation. And to your point, you know, thinking about the details of where you put it matters for tax reasons. But how, how do you think about um, the difference between what, what you refer to as risk preference and risk capacity? Right, so, 
So, you know, when, when figuring out the right portfolio for someone, there's different, there's different kind of levers that advisors can use to kind of pick the right portfolio. And, and I broadly kind of put this, this, this decision process in, in, a, in a two main, you know, camps. The first is, is risk preference. And risk preference is, is how someone feels about taking risks, right? It's, 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 you know, I want to have a more conservative portfolio because if the markets perform poorly, I'm going to panic and sell out. Right. Uh, the, uh, a different perspective on, on risk for portfolios is risk capacity. And risk capacity has to do with how much risk you should take in your, in your portfolio given your overall situation. So, you know, for example, if you've got a lot of money in retirement in Social Security and pensions and annuities, you can be more aggressive in your portfolio because you've got this very bond-like asset. Um, it's part of your overall wealth when you have those social security monies. And so risk preference is not a risk you kind of want to take given your perspective on, on the market, how you respond. Risk capacity is the risk that you should take given your, your overall financial situation, your years to retirement, et cetera. And in between the two, you know, I really believe that risk capacity should dominate. So there's someone, someone's portfolio, you should start with figuring out what makes sense given their capacity possibly then adjust that based upon their preference. But that's a bit different than how we usually think about well, what is the right portfolio for someone today. Well, it, it sounds like you're, you're thinking about the concept of how long is it before I'm going to need to access this money? And, and that would be a component that would suggest, you know, more capacity for risk than if somebody needs to act, like if they needed it 20 years from now versus next month. Um, and, and I'd love to hear your, your perspective on the idea of sequence of return, and, and that might lead you to you know, the annuity allocation, which I know is, is, is part of your research as well. But how do, you, how do you think about that idea of the sequence of return risk for those that are entering a retirement? Sure. So, so sequence of return risk is just that the, the returns you experience when you first retire your balance is the largest is is you know they are the most important and they really kind of determine whether or not you're successful and, and you know right now we're in kind of a, a difficult spot you know there's uh, the last few days have been have been very volatile and i think that, that a lot of people that, that, that you know do forecasts on returns like ourselves don't have high expectations for the future and so this this possibility of of low initial returns can really you know devastate someone's retirement portfolio. And, and you, know, you mentioned annuities. I think that annuities really can play a role as a buffer for someone when it comes to their retirement income. Because you know, if you're someone that has the vast majority of your wealth in a portfolio and the portfolio suffers, then you're in trouble. Right? Having you know, a healthy amount of guaranteed income you know, provides lots of benefits. You know, it ensures that even if the markets do tank, they're going to be okay. There's also some behavioral stuff there too. I think that, that a lot of people have a hard time, you know, spending down their their, their lifetime savings. It's easier to spend income. I think that, that having having income provides this floor that lets you actually be more aggressive in your portfolio. Because if you don't know how long you're going to live, how long do you plan for? Do you plan to live to age 100? Well, that's really really expensive, right? And, and hedging out that longevity risk, I think, really makes for a more efficient retirement strategy for a retiree. So, so it's almost like we don't know how long we're going to live, but if we know we've got some income that'll always be there, I mean, have you found that that helps people not, not worry as much that, A, they, they know that they're going to get uh, income from that segment for the rest of their lives and that they can um, 
be in a position potentially not to sell things they don't want to sell by by having all these different buckets between guaranteed income and safer money not connected to the equity markets and all those pieces put together? Right. I mean, retirees that have more guaranteed income are happier than retirees that don't have more guaranteed income if you control across all these different factors. Right? I mean, the thing is, there's just, there's just so much uncertainty about retirement. I mean, um, especially how long it lasts. And, and having knowing that you have, I think, income for life, you know, just can radically simplify that part of this really complex retirement equation. Well, compared to, let's say, 50 years ago, people had pensions. And so are you, do you think of the annuity allocation as a way to more or less take some money and, and create something that feels like that for ourselves, since most of us don't have that from an employer anymore? Right. I mean, to your point, this movement away from defined benefit plans, you know, I think it makes sense for employers. You know, if I'm an employer... I don't want to manage that risk, but you know, but the problem is, is that when employers did it, they could they could pool the risks, right? So when you have a defined benefit plan, this risk of longevity is pooled across hundreds of thousands of employees. Okay, now we're at this place where we all these defined contribution plans, and there's no more risk pooling for longevity, right? So all of a sudden, you have your, your individual 401k balance or your IRA balance, and you've got to figure out how long you're going to plan to live for retirement. Well, it's much more efficient structurally to pool that risk of guaranteed income product, like an annuity. So I really do think that, that today, annuities are more important because we are seeing that, that kind of, you know, the significant decline in the availability of, of defined benefit plans and pensions. Well, that, that makes sense. And so we're saying really you're, it's the, the insurance companies that are issuing these annuities, they're able to pool the risk with, with a bunch of people and one person lives to 110 and another one lives to to 85 and and yet everybody everybody can benefit because of the the law of large numbers i mean is that as, as simple as that in terms of how you think about the the benefit and how the insurance companies can create those things that's right i mean it, it's impossible to guarantee a constant income for life from a portfolio you, you just can't do it you know if you want to guarantee income from a portfolio what if you live 50 years well um, you know, it, it, it insurance companies, there's these, there's these outgoing folks called actuaries. Um, they do a, a pretty good job of figuring out, you know, what are the odds of someone living a long time. And, and I know that, that, you know, the word annuity today is, it has negative baggage. People have all these, you know, I think misconceptions about who they are, how they work. I mean, you know, for me, first and foremost, it's a form of insurance. And I know that we, we wrap these today in, in different investment products, but the fundamental role here is to help someone guarantee income for life. And people don't, don't have the same problem with, with life insurance, disability insurance, or health insurance. They have it with, with annuities or guaranteed income. And so, you know, from my perspective, it's, you know, the role of these is it's risk management. that might have some kind of upside, but it's always what you're looking at. But, but look at it from the lens of, hey, if I get this, no matter how long I live, I have guaranteed income. I think that that's really incredibly valuable. Well, and, and you mentioned life insurance. Is that so? As an example, do you see that as a way for a person who has cash value in life insurance, and, and let's say it's not the variable kind, but more of what we might think of as fixed income? Like, do you see that um, from the tax benefits it can bring as as a possible 
way to think about this idea of asset location and tax diversification in, in addition to the other points you made earlier? I do. I mean, again, I think that, you know, like it's about thinking about the, the role of each of each asset in a portfolio. I think that, that, that you know, certain assets are, are more complex than others. I think, you know, people of like, of like whole life insurance, you know, if you can use whole life insurance as the bond part of your portfolio, you're going to achieve a higher effective rate of return than, than buying term insurance and investing in fixed income for a variety of reasons. Right. And so when you take, you know, uh, again, this is the idea of, of gamma or just, you know, the value of an advisor is, is being holistic results in, in more wealth for an investor. And you can do this through, through pay, paying less taxes, building more efficient portfolios. But all these, you know, all these little things that we can call them that really add up to a significant difference in the outcome if you track someone over 10 or 15 or 20 years. Well, and that, and that leads us to an, another point in this idea of, you know, when we think about the complexities associated with distribution and in terms of how everything's taxed and certain monies like IRA and 401k were required to start taking money out at, at 70 and a half. So how do, how do you think about that idea of, I believe the term you use is withdrawal sourcing in terms of how to, how to optimize that? Well, I mean, obviously, with, with RMDs, you know, you have to take out a certain amount each year that kind of, you know, limits your ability to kind of choose across buckets. But, you know, it, it does make sense to think about, you know, pulling money from buckets in the most tax-efficient manner. And so, usually, um, how we think about that from a research perspective is you, is you pull from the taxable account first, the traditional, and the Roth. My perspective is, is thinking about, again, someone's wealth holistic to their income. How do you want to help them? You know, accomplish income for life, and I think it, it it does make sense to have have some of each bucket over time. But again, generally, you think about first sourcing from a taxable account, then uh, traditional, and then Roth if you can. Well, and that, and, and the other thing that's interesting about that is that in order to have different buckets to pull from later, we've got to create them at some point. And I know there's a a, a number of studies out there that are that are essentially saying people aren't aren't saving enough to get where they want to go. And that, and that goes back to, I think, a, an, an early topic in our discussion today of how much they're going to need later. So when, when you think about, um, it is part of the value that you see in the financial plan for that younger person, um, just to help them see that potentially, um, based on what they're spending, et cetera, that the 401k may not carry it on its own and just to encourage them from an earlier stage to start saving over and above that? Right, so I think your point is that the kind of the, kind of the relative value of advice changes over time for investors. I think that, that, that for younger individuals, uh, the role of the advisor is, is to help them understand the value of saving, help them understand like, why you have to save, all that stuff, and it gives you if you transition through time, and it's focused on well, you know, are you prepared for retirement? When should you retire? You know, as you move through retirement, you know, where do you take the money from? And so, to me, it's this idea of of, of, of of the continuous value of those services, and, and they're not the same over time because obviously things like saving for retirement isn't a, isn't a relative isn't important at all when you're when you're seven years old and already retired. And so, instead of understanding, you know, where someone is in their life cycle, and then building a strategy for them. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, just a couple other topics as we get ready to wrap up in the next few minutes. And, and, and one is, so if we think about the idea of a, 
the sequence of return risk that we talked a little bit about. Um, do you see that in, in, in certain instances, or for most folks, that it's, it's helpful to have cash or something efficient, maybe cash value and life insurance, if they had enough time to, you know, to feed money into it before they retired? Do you see that as a way to perhaps um, have less less bonds and more equities with back to that idea of not selling things during a downturn and just positioning ourselves with um, some of these other assets? Sure, I do. I think that, that you know, again, every every situation is different, and you know, one one thing we don't talk about a lot when it comes to developing strategies is is, is what is the investor willing to actually do, and, and how you know how do they understand these different pieces in terms of working through this retirement problem. And so you know, you know, concepts like like buckets, um, whole life insurance, all these different things I think are really viable ways to kind of help someone understand how they're going to accomplish their goal from a behavioral perspective. Because, I mean, if we were all robots, we should all be invested almost almost entirely in that because we have a little bit of cash. But no one wants to do that, right? You know, people have, have all these biases and these kind of uh, behavioral nuances that make it really hard to kind of follow a plan. And getting someone to kind of follow that plan, I think, is, is, is again, one kind of one more component of this value of advice that advisors help clients do when it comes to accomplishing the goal. Well, this idea of behavioral finance, uh, there was a study, I believe Richard Thaler did it a number of years ago, and they were looking at what people actually do with their retirement money and how they allocate it. And I'd love your perspective on this. What they what they essentially found is that people tend to do whatever the default is. Maybe that's 50% stocks, 50% bonds, and they never, ever change it again for 30 years in the case of the professors they studied. So as, as you think about back to that value of an advisor, you know, most of the time the advisor isn't managing the, the 401k. Um, but have you noticed that in terms of the research you've done that, that people perhaps haven't given much thought to it and, and um, that it's helpful to just get them to think about that idea of risk capacity in the context of the 401k and advisors could potentially ask a few extra questions to make sure that the allocation there makes sense in light of everything else? I, I definitely do. I, I think that, that, you know, fortunately, we're in a place today in, in 401ks in the fund country space where, where the default is, is more intelligent. I think, you know, what was kind of terrifying was this idea of every single DC investor building portfolios themselves. I mean, I mean, just to be honest, John and Jane Doe should not be forced to pick among 30 different funds, you know, in, in their 401k menu and build a portfolio. Targeting funds are, are an improvement, I think, but they're definitely not perfect. I think that it's, it's a one-size-fits-all approach towards investing where, again, it's better than someone building the portfolio themselves, but it's not as good as, as sitting down with someone and saying, hey, you know, how does this portfolio best help you accomplish your goals? You know, what should you have investing in your 401k and your IRA? Where should you save money across your different accounts? And so we're in a better place than we were, say, a decade ago. Um, but, you know, automation is good, but I think the advice really – which will probably really help someone get to that goal the best way possible. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And you've you've covered a number of points that I know are going to be helpful to everybody listening in terms of putting all these pieces together for clients at every stage from accumulation all the way to distribution. And David, as, as we wrap up, any final uh, words of wisdom you'd like to share with everybody today? You know, I would just say that uh, it's, 
the most important aspect of, of financial advice is, is accomplishmental. And I, I've said this a number of times, but, but to me, what I'm looking forward to is, is, is different metrics in the future as we think about, you know, what it means to accomplish a goal or, you know, get to an outcome. I, I, I long for the day that the performance is on the eighth page of a quarterly statement and all the information for the first four pages is, is, is are you on track, what's getting done, and how are things working for you. And I really do think that kind of changing that, that point of reference really helps someone conceptualize why they're doing what they're doing. No one likes to save for retirement. And so the goal is not to, you know, have the best portfolio, it's to accomplish the goal itself. Um, I'm just excited about this idea of, of, of goal-based planning and, and helping investors accomplish a certain Wow, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and uh, it's been it's been great uh, having our conversation today. And uh, I know it's gonna gonna help everybody listening. Thanks for being here with us. And uh, as always, if anybody has any questions, don't hesitate to give us a call at four one five five seven four six six five nine.